Hello, Jan here with a post-production note to apologize for the quality of some of our audio. One of the mics caused some feedback and we wanted to try to preserve the interview with Alaric and Taryn and continue to post it. If it turns out to be too difficult to understand, I'll reschedule with them and try again. Thank you for your patience. Hello and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. And today we are very lucky to have joining us Taryn Martin and Alaric Albertson, who are both part of the Anglo-Saxon community. And welcome, gentlemen, to our, the podcast. Uh, thank you for having us. You bet. And uh, looks like we have a little bit of feedback from one of the microphones, so uh, hopefully uh, that won't be too much of a distraction and we'll just keep going and we'll... Uh, take care of that later. So thanks, guys. Uh, so welcome to the podcast and uh, for taking the time to join me and to talk about Anglo-Saxon heathenry. And first of all, is that what you do you consider Anglo, does Anglo-Saxon practice part of heathenry? Yes, it is. Okay. I like to clarify that because some people are are thinking about that they don't want to be classified as heathens because of a lot of the stuff going on in the world and they're having some difficulties with that. So I like to clarify and be sure that that is what we're a part of, or if not, then just to be able to classify it to where it needs to be, Anglo-Saxon heathenry. Uh, this is Alaric. I have found, this is in my experience, it doesn't matter what I call myself, somebody's gonna have an objection to it or somebody else who calls themselves that is going to be doing something that I don't want to be associated with. You know what I'm saying? So there are people who don't want to be called pagan because of some things that pagans do. You know, uh, there are some people who don't want to be called heathen because of some things that heathens are doing. You know, so I don't really care. You can call me anything. I figure anybody who gets to know me a little bit will know what I do and what I am into and what I'm not into. That sounds great. Call you anything but late for supper? Is that it? Pretty much, yeah. Uh-huh. That's my philosophy. <laughs> I think I heard that on a cartoon when I was a kid, and so it's always stuck with me. Well, then, uh, let's talk about Anglo-Saxon heathenry and uh, kind of what it is. And we'll kind of start off with both of you. How did you come to paganism and later or uh, Anglo-Saxon heathenry? What drew, what was the draw for you? Do you want to go first, or do you want me to take Karen? Um, you might as well go first, because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. Okay, well, long ago in the Stone Age. <laughs> Called the 70s. Yeah, well, pretty much, yeah, early 70s. It was 1971. It's like I was looking for something. I kind of decided that Christianity just was not working for me, but I still hope it's void. I was looking for something, and I met some pagan people. Nobody used the narrative. Well, not nobody. Very few people used the word pagan back then. Uh, outside of church wall worlds, just didn't really hear it. Uh, so these people were calling themselves witches, but that's what they were. They were pagans, and they—that's what they did. I mean, they were—they—they they didn't tell me these were Anglo-Saxon gods, and I was totally new to this. So I didn't realize they were Anglo-Saxon gods. They were just the, quote, old gods, unquote. And it was actually a couple of years before I, I found out on my own that they were Anglo-Saxon deities. So in some ways, I wound up there because it was the first thing I was exposed to. 
and it's also something I've always been very comfortable with. Um, in my heritage, you know, on many levels, I am Anglo-Saxon. Uh, you know, you don't have to be of English descent to follow an Anglo-Saxon path, but I am of English descent, so I have a connection there. And then, you know, what language are we speaking here? So, you know, culturally and how I think, it's like I think in Anglo-Saxon. So to me, it's, it's a very comfortable uh, spiritual path to take because it's, even though, you know, it's been overlaid with Christianity, you know, our American culture and all, we still are Anglo-Saxons. We still think in those terms. And it's, it's uh, I find it much easier to, to uh, really deal with talking about like really following a historical path compared to following something like um, a comedic path like Egyptian because I don't think in Egyptian if that makes sense it does so yeah <laughs> Taryn um well for quite a few years back in uh I mean not Back in the Stone Age, but back in the probably the Iron Age, um, if you want to call it that way. Back in the 90s, um, I was pretty much agnostic. And one lucky day, I guess you'd say for me, I saw Buckland's Big Blue Book in uh, a Walden Books and picked it up and started practicing uh, for a few years as a solitary joined the Pittsburgh Pagan community back in the late 90s. And in the early 2000s, I met a uh, new transplant to Pittsburgh, uh, Alaric, and his uh, husband, Scott. And he, after, I mean, we were friends uh, and went to his his gatherings, to his inherited Arendelle, to their uh, a few of their open things that they had. And just that kind of attracted me. And I joined Arendelle, I think in 2004, and I've been Anglo-Saxon ever since. That sounds great. And so Arendelle is what? Us. It's our tribe. Okay. And that's an Anglo-Saxon group of folks that you practice outside of, in Pennsylvania. Is that correct, Alaric? Yes. It's more than that. It's more than just, you know, that's that's what we do ritually once a month. Uh-huh. But it's it's much more than that. It's a tribe. It's, it's a family. You know, Taryn is, to me, as much family as any family I've got out there. And, you know, I don't think people always quite get that. You know, it's uh, kind of like, well, I'm stuck with them, you know? <laughs> You know, that's, you know, but that's what family is. Even if you were really annoyed with somebody, you know, it's like you can't, it's not like a friend where you can just say, well, uh, you're my friend, now I don't, now you're not my friend. You know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's a real commitment where you uh, accept the person for all their flaws and for all their good things. And, you know, but you know, we are really tight in certain ways like that. And it's nice to have that also because it gives you a certain security. You know, there's somebody out there also is going to tell you if your zipper's down. 
that sounds like a great thing because that's what we all should be in our kindreds or our small groups is like a family building those familial relationships where we have each other's back. And you know, I, I do think like throughout the pig community, there is kind of a sense of that. Uh, I think it's something that also a lot of people strive for. You know, anytime you see you know, a good coven, will very much, very often be the exact same thing, except you know they also have the coven format, which is sort of what we do. But a good coven would also be in your family or tribe. You have that support, that strong support from others. And I think it's really important in our today's society where, you know, we come from people who, at least in, okay, in Anglo-Saxon history, uh, ours was a culture of the village. You know, you lived in a village where you were related to everyone and those people were right there and they had your back. You know, now we don't have that anymore. Now we live in these, you know, we're Americans, and I love being an American. I'm proud to be an American. But America is not a village. America is this huge, huge, uh, you know, entity. And it's easy for the individual to feel lost and aimless. We don't have that tribal component that that kind of brings up to uh, like there are some factions that talk about how you have to be of a certain heritage or a certain cultural background. How does that relate by bringing Anglo-Saxon practices and doing it here in America? I'm not quite understanding the question. Well, there are some folks that call it cultural misappropriation where, you know, we're, here we are in America and you're practicing a a very English tradition, and how does that translate to how you do things today in a modern context and in America? I mean, cultural appropriation is when you make a game out of somebody else's culture. You know, it's like if you if you are inspired by somebody else's culture and are sincerely seeking, that's really not appropriation. And, you know, it's like if it is, then we've been having cultural appropriation. Everybody's been doing it throughout human history because every culture out there has evolved something else and has been inspired by the other cultures that they have touched. Um, but I, I do understand kind of how uh, things can slip into cultural appropriation. And it's always been very important to me uh, that I don't do that. I'm always very conscious of the fact that there are you know, people in England who I don't want them to feel that you know, I'm taking their path, but at the same time, I am English. You know, I, de I am descended from the Tauntons and the Potters and the Oaks. You know, I'm de descended from English people, so I am English. Um, and and uh, I've worked really hard in my books to not do that cultural appropriation sort of thing. Um, and, and I think I've, I've succeeded because I have never had anybody from England accused me of that, and I actually have a fairly decent fan base in England of uh, English people who have, well, a lot of, I've gotten a lot of emails from English people who have thanked me, uh, basically saying, my ancestors are Anglo-Saxon, thank you for writing your books, I'm so tired of hearing everything Celtic, Celtic, Celtic. <laughs> Which is not knocking the Celts, of course. you know, but you know, for these people who, uh, you know, 
Anglo-Saxon background, you know, they, many of them have found it refreshing to see somebody talking about their Anglo-Saxon background instead of, you know, anything when we're talking about something happening, happening on the British Islands, always going to the Celts. So, so what are you bringing over and what does the Anglo-Saxon practice kind of look like that you can share? I have read both of your books, Travels Through Middle-Earth and Weird Working, which will soon be re-released, and we'll talk about that later. And I found them both very interesting books, and I really love them a lot. Very practical stuff. So what are some of the basic things that people can understand about how Anglo-Saxon heathenry practices operate today that they might not know about? Well, you know, it's, it's Germanic. Uh, there's no question it's Germanic. And in fact, the Anglo-Saxons uh, considered themselves Germans you know, after, after, after uh, immigrating to the island. They still considered themselves Germans. But uh, there are differences between Anglo-Saxon and Norse. Uh, well, in fact, even then, you say Norse, and people will tend to throw all, you know, a lot of different cultures together. You know, Northern European societies were not all identical. You had Icelandic, you had you know, uh, Norwegian, you had Swedish, you have Danish. You have a lot of different Germanic cultures there. Anglo-Saxon tends to stand out more, tends to have more differences, uh, I think, than, than some of the others. Uh, and I, I, I personally believe, I mean, I can't believe, try to disprove it. I personally believe that it's a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they were on this island. Um, <clears throat> you know, merry old England, um, that entire island is about the same square miles as the state of Pennsylvania. You know, so here they're on this island with other people, with those Celtic people, and I think, I think that living shoulder to shoulder like that is something that changed some of their customs and traditions that give it a unique flavor. On the other hand, I want to make it clear that, that, that you know that it isn't just us versus them. Um, I have found, for example, that Anglo-Saxon pagans tend to have a lot in common with Swedish pagans. Well, not so much with Icelandic necessarily. So, um, you know, it's really a patchwork of different Germanic cultures that make up what people think of as, as, as Germanic remorse. Um, Anglo-Saxon, some of its defining qualities, first of all, thing about the village, uh, we're very much a tribal people, and there are even sects within Anglo-Saxon movement that, that really super stress that that tribe um, more, much more so than I do but I do think that all Anglo-Saxon people uh, that is kind of a, a defining feature is we all are uh, at least to some degree sort of tribal another feature of it is the pantheons our pantheon tends to be a little bit different if you go uh, into the Scandinavian countries don't, for example, um, they don't have Elstra, who's the goddess of the spring and the morning and dawn. On the other hand, uh, we don't have Loki, so there's there's just there's certain differences 
in that respect. And then there's also a difference which I think has more to do with time necessarily than place. Most of what Anglo-Saxons draw on come from a time period that was much more agrarian, whereas bring Taryn into this and we'll kind sure. of jump around a little bit and we'll talk about the rune deck mm-hmm. i have the rune deck it's okay. the martin rune deck and it's produced by um wolf den designs and i actually think it's really really awesome the artwork is fantastic and it differs from most other rune things that are available because it's an Anglo-Saxon. So I'm not sure who would like to take this, but how did the idea of creating a rune deck come about? Um, well, Alaric was actually writing weird working. Um, and he was at the time going to do a book specifically on just the runes. And we uh, discussed doing uh, like a companion deck to go with the book that really uh, with the publisher uh, really didn't work out, but we figured there was really no reason not to go forward with it on our own. So that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. When I started out weird working, that wasn't going to be the title. Uh, it was going to be just rooms. It was just going to be just a book on the Anglo-Saxon rooms. And the problem with that. 30 years ago, I could have done that and just written the book, and I would have been fine. Uh, but now, when every New Age shop from coast to coast is selling the Elder Futhark as the runes, it's hard to write a book on the Anglo-Saxon runes without also giving people access to the Anglo-Saxon runes, because the Elder Futhark, those are the oldest runes that... Unfortunately, nothing is actually known about the Elder Futhark. Elder Futhark is very much kind of a New Age thing. Um, the Anglo-Saxon runes, there are more runes. So it would be kind of like, I'm going to write a book on the tarot. I'm going to write a book about the 120 cards of the tarot. You know, when you go out and you try to buy a 
tarot deck and it's only going to have 78 cards anywhere you go. You know, so I needed to have, uh, you know, access. You know, because again, it's like 30 years ago, people would just made their own and not thought of anything of it. But when they can go out and buy it and they're expecting that, it's just, you know, that's what they're expecting. So, you know, what can you do if you can't buy that? So we wanted to have these cards. And my initial idea was to have this book on rooms that would be sold uh, kind of as a box set with the cards. And I'm not going to really get into it. I totally disagree with, I mean, I love having Llewellyn as a publisher, but that doesn't necessarily mean I always agree with them on everything. Um, so I'm not going to get into their reasons, because I thought their reasons were just plain stupid. But... I had met with my acquisitions editor, and I'd shown her, uh, you know, my notes for the, the book, and uh, we'd already started, and Karen had done up some, uh, I think like four or five cards at that point, and she loved it, and so I thought, well, this is a go-ahead, we're going to do it. So we went plunging ahead on this, and we put a buttload of work into making these cards, and then like three months down the road or something like that. I, I don't really know the time frame. Something like that. Um, I got the nicest rejection letter. Um, you know, she, and you could tell my editor was, you know, really felt bad about it. And she, you know, she'd gone to bat for us and tried to explain why it was so important to have the cards also. But the powers that be that are on high at the publishing house said no they wanted the, they wanted the book but they didn't want the cards so at this point we'd almost finished the deck and we put in a lot of work on the deck and I knew this deck was awesome so you know we kind of like called around I talked to like my friend Christopher Penzak and, and, and uh, people like that and, you know like tried to get advice what should we do what should we go um the late Rod Landreth in uh, Kansas, who was, uh, was prominent in the heathen community, the Troth, uh, he uh, hooked me up with a uh, computer program that I sent to Karen where he could make a, a mock deck. The cards were crappy and wasn't something you want to sell, but so we could show people what we do. And then finally, the breakthrough came about when. Barbara Criswell, who is the owner of Aquarius Books in Kansas City, uh, she said she thought she probably should go. Uh, somebody she knew had done a deck of chakra cards and something like that, some Eastern thing. And you know, I knew nothing about this, but she showed us the cards, and the cards were beautiful. So I didn't really have to learn anything about it were about, but I could tell the cards were beautiful, and that was the way we were going to go, so, uh, you know, I already had the go-ahead on my book, and I had to focus on that, so I just told Taryn, you know, it's like, I've got to do this, i got to do the book, you know, so if you want to do the cards, you know, go for it, and, and uh, Scott loaned, my husband Scott loaned him the money uh, to finance it, but he actually, you know, it was a loan, essentially Taryn financed it himself to go ahead and print off these absolutely beautiful cards for the Martin Rune deck. And um, 
background story for that. But I do think they are they're really wonderful cards. We put in so much work. People have no idea how difficult it was to do these because we had uh, we had found out that there are other Anglo-Saxon decks out there. I didn't realize that when we started this project. My first thought when I found out there were other Anglo-Saxon decks out there was, well, crap, why are we putting all this work into it? Until we saw them. Yeah, and then I saw those decks. Well, I mean, no offense to those other decks. They're beautiful decks, but they don't really... We did everything we could possibly do to not put any of our own influence into these cards. We took the Anglo-Saxon rune poem, each verse for each card and tried to put just what the verse for the card was into the card and not to put our own influence into it, which some of the other decks definitely did not do. Obviously the artist was, was illustrating his or her personal interpretation of this room. And very often it would have nothing to do with the actual verse from the rune poem, which is our only historical source of knowledge of what these ancient mysteries are. You know, and, and there were some. There was this one card, uh, Wind, the, the Wind card. And, you know, these cards would go back and forth. I'd tell him what I wanted. And, and bless his heart, I would tell him this really crappy description of what I wanted. <laughs> and, and he'd come back with something. I'd go, no, that's not it. You know, we'd go back and forth on Wind telling me that he thought the characters on the card looked too static. Uh, and in the card, as it's finished, there's a table and there's food on it. I wanted this because uh, they're supposed to look like they have everything they need, shelter and food, uh, everything they need to be content. And he said, he said, they look static, the people. He said, maybe I can have them eating. So I sat on that for about 24 hours, and then I wrote back and I said no we can't do that because there's nothing in the group home that says anything about eating so that's what the kind of thing we were doing we like we like worked really really hard but we didn't put things in the cards that would stand in the way of what the, what the ancient mysteries actually are and it's a testament to our friendship that we're still actually friends today because some of the uh, conversations we had over different cards uh, were went from conversations to arguments to, um, you know what, I can't talk to you anymore today. Text me back tomorrow <laughs> because I can't deal with you anymore today. Sounds like true friendship. <laughs> yeah. Or true family. Well, it's, it's that, that's the thing. It's that, it's that inherent thing. It's like we're stuck with each other where we want to be or not. But, you know, it's like, I, and, you know, that's the thing. It wasn't like anybody was doing anything bad or anything, but it was a very difficult thing because I'm looking at this old English mystery and need. How do you draw a picture of need? So I'm telling him what I want. And, of course, what I'm telling him is so abstract. And, and poor Taryn is trying to make up some kind of image based on this. And then he sends it to me, and of course I'm saying, no, that's not what I want at all. You know, so I am kind of surprised. It's good that we weren't actually like living together at the time where he would have. <laughs> I picked up the deck a couple months ago on the recommendation of a, a mutual friend, Rob. 
I wasn't aware that there was a Anglo-Saxon rune deck, and I've had your weird working book for a number of years, Alaric, and got really interested in them. So I just bought the the cards right on Rob's recommendation immediately, and I think like a week and a half or so later they showed up. And Taryn, I am just thrilled with the artwork. I think it is really amazing artwork and spot on to the rune poems as I've been reading them. Well, I'm glad you enjoy them. Can't wait to uh, keep recommending them to folks and do a uh, like a maybe a YouTube review on them, and maybe we'll just get some more folks interested in the Anglo-Saxon runes because, as Alaric said earlier, yeah, it's all it's all about the Elder Futhark, and there's so much written about the Elder. There is no, there is literally no information, nothing about the Elder Futhark at all, historically speaking. You know, there are three rune poems. One of them addressed the mysteries of the Anglo-Saxon runes, and the other two uh, addressed the mysteries of the younger Futhark. And it's really clear if you look at these different things that, that you know you can't interchange them. A lot of the men, a lot of the things that have been written about Elder Futhark are actually uh, most of it's extracted from, from uh, the Anglo-Saxon, the Old English rune poem, which is a whole different set of runes. Because this character looks like this character, they apply that same meaning to it. But if you go from one rune poem to another, you know very often these, you know, like the Dark, the Dark, and the Anglo-Saxon Dark, even though they they are using the same symbols, you know, the same characters, very often you go from one rune poem to another, and that same character for, let's say, uh, the, the Norwegians would have one meaning for it, and the English would have an entirely different meaning for it. Um, you know, think of it like language, you know, um, and we can think of it like English language. You, know, you could go from uh, America to England, and we're all speaking English, and I've had this experience, you know, but you go over there, and then all of a sudden you say something, and this, this nice English person you're talking to is staring at you like, you just suddenly started speaking Greek. You used a word that made absolutely no sense. You know, either the word means something totally different in that language, or they don't know what the word means at all. Um, you know, I mean, okay, like the whole idea of like in America, especially in the South, we love to have our biscuits and gravy, and over in England, that's going to sound just disgusting because biscuits are what we call cookies. Yeah. You know, so uh, in the same way go from one set of runes to another and you're going, I mean, even though it's the same general language structure, they are different languages. They have different meanings. So just because a you find a symbol in the Old English rune poem means such and such, that doesn't mean that that's what it meant in the Elder Futhark or that or what those people who had the Elder Futhark, the Proto-Germanic people, that they assigned that meaning to that. That's something that people just totally made up. There's, there's no historical basis or any reason to believe that or not. Which doesn't mean you can't use the Elder Futhark. You know, or, or that using the Elder Futhark is not going to work, or, you know, or, you know the occult cops are going to show up because you're doing that. You know? Uh, but at the same time, you can use anything. You know, you can, you can use uh, Dungeon and Dragon dice and use it as a divination system. You know, if you just assign something to each of the dice, you know, different meanings to it. 
know, but if you want to do something where you're actually working with the mysteries of the runes as our ancestors knew them, you really have to work with either the old witch runes or with the younger Fulton. And I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Taryn, do you, do you use the uh, runes for your personal divination and use and things like that? Uh, yes, I do. Yes. And did, when you were doing the artwork, did you find um, inspiration from your studies, or was it all basically Alaric telling you, yes, no, you better get this right, or I'm killing you? Um, well, <laughs> it was most, I will say it was mostly that. Um, at the time, I, w I was still pretty much new into uh, Anglo-Saxon heathenry at the time, um, and I really wasn't... Um, uh, in the beginning, I wasn't really a big uh, divination person. I mean, I, I even now I don't do a, a lot of divination. Um, I'll do it in ritual, um, but that's about it. Um, I don't do it like as a daily practice. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so he would pretty much give me his vision of like, this is what the room poem says, and this is kind of where I think it should go. Um, but I also, um, I think I, you know, I put my own spin on it too. Cause, um, at the time I was, by that point I was oath to Woden. So pretty much every day that I would sit down at the computer to work on the cards, I would pretty much ask for inspiration. Um, you know, show me what needs to be done. Show me what you want these cards to look like. Um, so most times if it was, I'd send, a, you know, a uh, prototype to Alaric and say, well, this is what I'm working on so far. What do you think? And he'd say, well, that's not really not working or that's not really what I'm looking at. And okay, let's change it. Every so often there were things that I just, there was something about a certain aspect of the card or the whole card that someone higher than me was saying, no, this is the way this is supposed to look. So then that's when we got into arguments because I would defend and I would, I always had my reasons. It wasn't just like, well, that's what you get. And I was, and I was fine with that. You know, it's like, that was, you know, again, it's like, I mean, yeah, he was the artist. So, you know, I mean, it, it is his art, but, um, you know, as far as inspired, that was the big thing. And that's one thing why we kept like hammering at it. Uh, I mean, it was very much like an editorial process where you just hammer at it and hammer at it and hammer at it until you finally have what you want uh, and, and what's right. But, you know, the, the important thing was that neither none of the cards were really just inspiration. You know, I mean, they had, had to have art. They had to have some kind of picture on it. But we didn't want it to be... Um, I, it wasn't supposed to be these are the runes according to Karen or these are the runes according to or even these are the ones according to Arendelle and Kindred. These are supposed yeah, to be Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, we wanted the pictures to be. Some, the pictures were just there as mnemonic devices to remind people what is said in the written poem. And beyond that, the pictures should not get in the way because the real mystery is the runes. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, I, I'm just going to point out too. You, the deck, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon runes, there are 29 runes described in the Old English rune poem. 
there is another way of looking at the rooms where there's 33 rooms. Uh, and this is very often called the North Umbrian rooms where there's 33. But those other four rooms, uh, it's another thing where nothing is known about them. There is no actual lore about them. And all you can do is uh, take the name of the room, for instance, Stan is Old English for stone. So you can take the word stone and make up what you want as far as a meaning, but there's no actual historical knowledge of what that room might have meant, if it meant anything at all, if it had any mystical meaning at all. And uh, for those, we decide, we were trying to decide whether to include the cards or not. Um, we were thinking about just doing 29 cards, but again, it's like, then that would make it our version of the runes. So, it's like, no, we felt like people should have the right to use the other four uh, runes if they want to. So we did, we do throw in those other four cards, but those other four cards, instead of a, a very elaborate picture, just have a very simple picture with a brown background uh, so that the person who's actually do, using those cards is aware that, that for those, they don't really have, you know, a, a, a historical source of the meaning, and they do have to kind of like extrapolate their own meaning from the cards. I see. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what advice do you have for people who are more used to using Elder Futhark, such as myself, and making perhaps a transition to younger? Well, the good news, and, you know, it's, I mean, I don't want anyone to think that I'm putting them down for using Elder I, Futhark. That's what I started with, because that was all that was out there. Um, you know, and I had to make the transition. Uh, the good news is, here's the delightful good news, is you're already, you know, most of the way there. You're 80% of the way there. It's like I said, it's like most of the meanings attributed to these cards tend to be taken from the Old English room poems in the first place. So, you, you are probably kind of familiar with the Anglo-Saxon runes to start with. The difference is, you don't have them all. You're kind of like not playing with the full set. Um, I actually worked out the, you know, like the percentages, and it would be kind of like doing tarot readings, but leaving out the suit of pentacles. You know, and you could do that. You could take the tarot deck and leave out the suit of pentacles, and you could still do readings. You just don't have as many symbols as you're working with. Uh, in both cases, you have a little bit over 80%. When you're doing the Elder Futhark, you have the same, you have the same uh, runes, but you're, you, know, you only have 24 instead of 29. And, uh, you know, does that mean they don't work? No, of course they work. The younger Futhark only has 16, yeah. and it works great. You know, but but uh, if you want to use something where there actually are historical meanings, and you know that you're doing using runes that were actually you know, you know, real runes that we know something about, we know what they meant. But you know, and then I I need to add too. It's like any of this, any of this divination that we're doing, all of this is new. This is all new. I'm not going to say it never happened, but for the most part, using runes for divination was not a terribly common practice. Uh, there is only one, two, like very few, just a couple of reported instances of uh, you know, historical
historical records and somebody saying something that implies that runes may have been used for divination. Right. And even then, not, there, it's not definite. You know, the most definite is something by Tacitus, and we don't really know what that meant. Tacitus was talking about Germanic people who cut slips of wood and carved symbols on them and then cast lots. But no place does it say, and he put the runes on them, or how this was done, and I mean, it could be anything. They could have taken a bunch of little slips of wood and put X's on one side and then threw them all in the air and saw and see how many came up with X's and how many came up the other way. We don't know. You know, it's just, you know, people like to say, oh, see, there's proof that people mm -hmm. did this. But there's actually, like, no real proof of runes being used for divination. So all this is very new. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, historically, uh, what we do know is that the runes were used for magic, and that's undeniable. Anyone who says they weren't just is like ignoring all of history so that they can not have magic associated with the runes. You know, there's runes through, uh, through uh, their descriptions in Norwegian lore. There are the rune poems that give the meanings. You know, there's scads of evidence that the runes were used for magic. But when we're doing divination, uh, we are, you know, with the runes, we are doing something more modern. Uh, and, and as it is done today, uh, you know, because we don't really know how people used to do it, we have no idea of how it used to be done. We can, we can come up with clever ways. But, you know, as it is usually done today, runic divination was, was uh, obviously derived uh, from cartomancy, uh, from the way that I like to explain to people who ask me and when I teach classes is that the way we do rune divination or cartomancy is good for the way we practice and do things today. It's all divination techniques or all magical practice techniques are pretty much developed by the people based on their needs and what works for them and their tribes. And so we're doing what we can today, and this is working for us and our tribes today. Yes, absolutely. I'm just agreeing with you wholeheartedly. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, let's work down to do a little bit of wrap-up. Taryn, what are some projects that you're working on, and how can our listeners uh, who are interested in the Rune Deck get them? For the rune deck, uh, they can go to uh, wolfden-designs.com online. Uh, they're available on my website. Um, there's also artwork available there. Some mostly pagan artwork, some sci-fi fantasy dragon stuff. Actually, I have not had any uh, new projects on the fire lately. I've been at my regular mundane day job and working a lot of overtime uh so it has not left me a lot of time to do uh really anything else but that but hopefully i'll be able to get back to that soon thanks and i will have the link to wolf den designs in the show notes and i can just attest that the cards are great quality and they're beautiful and they're sturdy and they are really awesome both of you, oh, you did a you. great job with them Oh, and he's got, he's got really great um, T-shirts on that website, too. A great presence. <laughs> and they will. And I don't know, Taryn, are, are there only selected designs for the T-shirts and artwork? Or can anyone request any of the cards and then you'll be able to duplicate them? 
Um, I could, well, I, I don't actually have the cards on t-shirts, but I can put them on it if someone wants one. I mean the artwork from the cards. Yes. Okay. That okay. can be done. Oh, oh, okay. So that's not on t-shirts. I thought I saw like the Ing artwork on a t-shirt. Well, but... Ing is, but that's, I actually have a whole line of kind of the pagan, what would, the, how the Christians have the, what would Jesus do? I have like, what would Ing do? What would Woden do? What would uh, Bacchus do? Um, there's a whole line of those and Ing is one of them. It's the same image from the rune deck for that, for that t-shirt. That's excellent. Great. Well, we'll have that link on the show notes for sure. Okay, thank you. And Alaric, let's talk about your project coming up with Llewellyn. What's happening? Oh, well, it's, I mean, this is the same book, Weird Working. Um, I love Weird Working. You know, to me, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's my greatest work to date. I really don't expect to write anything better. I, you know, Taryn was saying the first book he ever saw, you know, the thing that really brought him in was uh, Ray's Big Blue Book, which is, of course, very, very famous. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is I used to hate that book because uh, I had sent in, in the 80s, I sent a manuscript to Llewellyn, and I got a very nice rejection letter from Carl Weshey, alive at the time and he said I love your book I love your style of writing fortunately we're, we're, gonna, we're putting out a book that's very similar by Ray Buckland that we feel two people will compete against each other and it turned out to be Ray's big book of witchcraft um, so of course I resented <laughs> it highly <laughs> oh, uh, the sensible part of me if I realized they probably you know, made the right decision because you know that's probably their biggest seller ever. Um, and I love Ray. I think I think Ray Buckley's an awesome man. I have the greatest respect for him. Uh, so I'm not knocking him at all. But you know, it's just kind of like a man. Why didn't you print my book? So it took a long time, and I, I actually didn't send him anything for the longest time. Uh, it wasn't until Christopher Penzak told me he said, you know, you need to. Book that came out 
<laughs> so when they said, can we change the title? I'm like, oh yes, you can change the title. <laughs> so we kind of went back and forth with that a little bit. And um, it, is, it has been released. It's out and available now. You can get it now. And now the title is A Handbook of Saxon Sorcery and Magic. And um, it's the same great book that it was before. It's got an awesome cover. The cover is vaguely similar in the sense that both the covers of Weird Working and the handbook cover have a mortar and pestle on them. But other than that, uh, it, the cover is quite different. Uh, it's kind of a brownish color cover instead of the orange color cover that uh, the original version was. And uh, you know, I'm hoping it'll reach a much wider audience with the title of the Handbook of Saxon Sorcery and Magic. The cover artist is Kevin Brown, who has done all of my book covers through Llewellyn. And, you know, I mean, I, I think so much of this man because he has given me the best uh, covers, cover art, which may not seem all that important, but, you know, the cover art is extremely important doesn't matter what I write or how good it is if a person doesn't take that book off the shelf and buy it and take it home I might as well not write it you know um, so I have a great deal of respect for Kevin Brown and I'm very grateful he's given me some wonderful covers so that's the new title is a handbook of Saxon sorcery and magic um, I don't want anybody to feel like they got screwed so if you've got weird working you do not need to buy this book it is the same book. Uh, the text is the same. There's not anything new in there. The only changes in the text at all were changes that were made where there were direct references to the title inside the book. And of course, you know, those had so we wound up deleting a couple sentences and changing a couple sentences. But for the most part, it is the exact same book. Same wonderful book. The first half of it is know the first half of it is about runes and rune magic and uh, the second half are other old English magic modalities and that kind of ties into this whole thing like talking about the cards and how the cards came about because when I found out that we weren't going to have the runes you know my, I came back I said how can I write this book about runes when people can't get these runes and uh, initially, that's all the book was going to be, was on runes. So the other magical techniques was because I wanted a book that had more in it. So if somebody got the book and they started in on it and they found that runes just weren't for them. And as much as I love runes, yeah. you know, runes aren't for everybody. You know, I live in Pittsburgh where everybody like lives and breathes for the Steelers. I couldn't care less <laughs> about the Steelers. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing out there that is, is for everybody, you know. So I wanted other things in there so if people bought the book, they would still find it, find it worthy and worthwhile. So the book as it stands now, about the first half of it is, is room, rooms and room magic. And then I go into other, well, it's actually called more magic techniques. When I talk about Galder, which... Uh, Saxon tradition, Galder is simply magic that is made with sound, the sound of your voice. It's, you know, it's this idea that words have power.
I've had it for a couple of years and I read it, loved it. Unfortunately, it got set aside on the bookshelf and I am really looking forward to uh, revisiting it more thoroughly. I have been looking at over for the last couple of weeks in preparation for us to talk, but I'm really looking forward to actually reading it from cover to cover and also Middle Earth uh, and getting back into that and maybe just delving a lot more into the Anglo-Saxon runes and getting more into the poem and learning more in depth from that aspect of it. That sounds really great. And I'm really glad that Llewellyn is uh, reissuing this. Of all my books, I am more proud of this than any of them. Well, I will recommend it. And Taryn, will you recommend it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I give his cards a plug in the book, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you know it's funny. Um, I was rereading a couple of the chapters right prior to where you start talking about the actual runes, and I noticed you did reference the rune deck in the book, and I thought, how did I miss that before? I I just completely missed it. So I'm really glad I got it, and I do heartily recommend the Martin rune deck, and uh, I will be doing a review on that on a separate podcast just to kind of go through it real briefly. It'll be a little short one, but. It's really a great deck, and I really like it a lot. So um, Glad you enjoy. So with that, I thank you both for taking the time to talk about uh, Anglo-Saxon practices, uh, the Anglo-Saxon runes, the rune deck, and all that you've done for this practice. This is really awesome. So thanks, gentlemen. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Anglo-Saxon practices, pick up Alaric's book, Handbook of Saxon Sorcery, from your local book retailer. If they cannot get it, then go ahead and order from your favorite online retailer. Check out Alaric's website for more information at alericalbertson.com and also for a listing of his other works. You can order the Martin Rune deck from wolfden-designs.com and these links will also be in the show notes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, as is are your reviews on iTunes. Um, reviews on iTunes always help the podcast to be located easier, and it helps us kind of get to the top of the listings. So see the show notes for additional links and notes, and thank you again for listening. Thank you.